Welcome to this panel event at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, which explores the intersections between diplomacy, aid, development and foreign policy. John Langmore reviews the experiences of DFAT's diplomatic personnel in helping to reduce violent conflict and makes the case for a stronger commitment by government and civil society to conflict prevention and peacebuilding. Joanna Pradella argues that with the Pacific one of the staging grounds for the renegotiation of the New World Order, Australia should adopt a feminist approach to foreign policy, one that is grounded in gender equality. Pierre van der Eng analyses the rapid expansion of Australia's foreign aid to Indonesia during the late 60s and 70s in the context of Australia's evolving foreign policy towards Asia. And Dave Green and Kaisha Krupi look at aid program performance reports, the challenges associated with balanced public reporting on program performance, and how the tension between public diplomacy and performance management objectives might be better managed in the future. The Australasian Aid Conference is hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation. The panel is chaired by Caitlin Byrne, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Ladies and gentlemen, we might make a start. It's really fantastic, can I say, to hear this vibe in the room. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Caitlin Byrne. I'm the director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University in Queensland, and it is truly a pleasure to be here with you for this whole conference, but especially for this particular panel. Before we get going, I'd really like to acknowledge the traditional custodians, the Ngunnawal people of the land that we're meeting on, and acknowledge their leaders, past, present and emerging. We're in for a bit of a treat this afternoon, I think, and particularly given the speech we heard this morning from the Minister for Development and Pacific Islands, um, we're going to be delving a little bit more into some of the intersections between development, aid, foreign policy and diplomacy. We're looking at a, a range of different case studies over time, as well as some of the more contemporary issues, and we've got a fabulous lineup of speakers who bring enormous expertise from outside the foreign policy world, as well as, as practitioners within it. So um, I'm really looking forward to hearing from each of them. And then, of course, from hearing, I'm looking forward to hearing from you and getting your questions at the end of this session. So we'll crack on uh, and begin our session with Dr John Langmore, who's going to be talking to us about security through sustainable peace. John is a professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and I should note, as he um, walks towards the podium, that he has a particularly special connection to this place, having been the Labor Federal Member for what was then Fraser, is now Fenner, um, from the period of 1984 to 1996. And he then left here and went to the UN in New York, where he was the Director of the Division of Social Policy and Development and spent seven years in that space. So Canberra to New York, now back to Canberra. John, a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks very much for the introduction. Uh, I'm speaking on behalf of uh, Tanya Maletic and myself, who have both been involved in a, in a study that I want to explain to you, and Tanya's here with me. The purpose of the paper is to make the case for stronger government and civil society commitment to conflict prevention and peace building. Uh, the fact of the matter is that 
For the last four years, there have been more wars in the world each year uh, than at any time since 1946. Uh, they haven't all been uh, involved huge numbers of deaths, but the number of wars has been higher in, in the last four years than at any time since the Second World War. And the response of many countries to recognition of that has been to build up their military forces, and Australia is one of those who's had that response. Uh, but our case is that uh, there's been, this has not involved an increase in attention to peace building or to conflict prevention. In the last uh, two, two, three years since Antonio Guterres was elected uh, Secretary General of the UN, he's given this a much higher priority and that's very welcome and the UN is building up its capacity and a number of other countries are too but many countries don't seem to recognize that there's a lot that can be done through peace building techniques and conflict prevention which may well uh, lead to ends of ending some of those conflicts. So. Uh, uh, Three or four of us at the University of Melbourne thought that it would be very interesting to survey uh, the experiences of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And we, we did interviews with 120 uh, diplomats, current and former diplomats, and a few people also from Defence, Australian Federal Police uh, and, and NGOs about Australian experience during the last 30 years. And there has been some good Australian experience and, and, and also some, some neglect. We've, we've uh, completed a report which is called Security Through Sustainable Peace. And I, I hope that the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, to which we've submitted that, is about to clear it for publication. It's due to be out in a month or two. There are a number of conclusions that we came to, and those are the ones I want to run through. The first is that uh, if there is to be, if a country is to take really seriously the, the possibility of there being value in dialogue and mediation and all the other techniques for peace building, then whenever a government is faced with uh, a conflict, it ought to first think about whether any of those techniques uh, and the analysis of the conflict have a role in, in dealing with it. There is a tendency in Australia to very quickly send in the troops without thinking about that, those conflict prevention techniques. So that is very much a political choice. It, it depends on the Prime Minister, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Minister for International Development and, and the Pacific and so on, who meet in the National Security <coughs> Committee of Cabinet to have in, in their minds and be reminded by their public servants uh, that one of the first questions to ask is whether there is any uh, peacemaking that's possible in the situation of conflict that they're, uh, that they're to discuss. There may not be. I'm not saying there always is, 
uh, and I'm not saying it's always effective, but it should always be thought of as, as a possibility. Uh, uh, linked to that, it's very important to build up the Australian diplomatic core. Uh, shockingly, we found when we did the analysis that expenditure in Australia as a proportion of total Commonwealth expenditure uh, has fallen. I'm not saying that, that, that diplomatic expenditure as such has fallen, but it's remained very, very, very stagnant. But as a proportion of total Commonwealth expenditure between 1995-96 and, and last year, 2018-19, nearly a quarter century, expenditure on diplomacy by Australia fell by 42%, 42%. It was 0.38% it was of total Commonwealth expenditure in the mid-90s. Uh, last year, it was 0.22% of total Commonwealth expenditure. So there's been a massive decline in the attention given to diplomacy uh, by, the, by Australian governments. And that's not a partisan point. Uh, it, it wasn't better under Labor governments than it was under Conservative governments. Uh, you, you, you might wonder why that is. Well, the purpose of this paper isn't to debate that question, but it's a very important question to debate. But uh, uh, what we're saying is that this has undermined the Department of Foreign Affairs' capacity to, to give attention to uh, the very personnel intensive work that's involved in conflict prevention. Uh, we're not alone in having come to this conclusion. The Lowy Institute did a, did a study of, of diplomatic expenditure in Australia in 2011, came to the same conclusion, and so did a parliamentary, the, the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade which did a, a report in 2012 which concluded that Australia's diplomatic service is so inadequately funded and staffed that it could not be fully effective. So it, it's, it's essential that that be built up. Uh, as well as building up the, the, the number of people employed, uh, there has to be an upgrading in the, in the degree of attention that's given to conflict analysis uh, and to the various forms of uh, peace building that, that are available. And there are, there are many available, of course, and uh, there's a need for there to be more trained people, uh, trained both within the service, but also trained in Australia's universities. There are some courses on, on conflict analysis and peace building in a number of universities, but that needs to be expanded. Uh, the UN under Guterres, and well, and in fact, uh, for the last 10 years, has been incrementally building up its mediation support unit. Uh, so th there are there are international networks uh, that are, it's important to link with and and get the benefit of their experience, as well as those training programs and recruitment programs. There is, of course, a need to take more seriously uh, the, the implications of the women, peace and security agenda. It was shocking to hear 
from Jenny Klugman yesterday that, that the proportion of women involved worldwide in, in mediation and, and, uh, and peace building ha has fallen. It was in the last couple of years uh, that her index had, had operated for. It's, it was at a very low percent proportion before, and I think the proportion was 15 percent, and it, but it had gone down between between uh, 2017 and 2019. Uh, there, are, there are other aspects of the conclusions that, that we came to that are important, but I won't go on with too, too many of them. Uh, another thing that to just to briefly draw attention to is that Australia has, has which has had quite a good record of participating in, in peacekeeping, is not doing much now. Uh, there are only a, roughly 30 Australians overseas serving in peacekeeping missions and, and Guterres has been calling for countries to build up their attention and, and we haven't been responding to that. Uh, one of the lessons of, of, of conflict prevention, peace building and, and uh, by, by Australia as, as by other countries is the importance of disarmament uh, as, a, as a step towards peace building. Uh, that was very clear in the Bougainville crisis and in the Solomon Island crisis, where uh, the first task of the, of, the of the groups from outside when they came in was to, was to uh, st stop the violence, and that involved as, as much disarmament as, as could be negotiated, and it happened very, very quickly and pretty completely in the Solomons, more slowly in the Bougainville, but it did eventually there as well. And, but that has implications for countries, uh, for, for richer countries as well. And there is a question about whether Australia should be going on uh, uh, increasing its military expenditure. I, I think there's a question too, whether, whether it's appropriate for Australia to be giving attention to a, a weapons sales uh, uh, policy, which which is underway at present, particularly when some of those weapons are likely to be being used in in vicious campaigns like that in uh, in Yemen. So to conclude, I think we need to give much more careful attention to the issue of of, of, of peace building and conflict prevention. I think a lot of people despair of that because they. They, they think, can it ever be successful? It, it isn't always successful, but if you don't try it, uh, there's no chance of it being successful. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. I hope we get to hear a little bit more, actually, about that study. One of the things that I think um, the work that John and Tanya have been involved in, one of the, the really important elements of that, I'm checking the microphone, has really been in collecting some of the stories from within DFAT um, from amongst diplomats and there's an important element of oral history here that, that I think would be useful potentially to tap into over time. I'd now like to introduce our second speaker, Joe Pradella. Um, Joe's going to be, Joe is the Director of Knowledge Translation at IWDA and she's going to be talking to us on a topic that I know is important to many of you in this audience, and that is around feminist foreign policy. Um, and I should, work, should mention that Jo has worked in and around the international development sector in the US, 
uh, in Australia and the Pacific for the past 15 years. Born and raised in New York, she's probably overlapped at some stage with you, John, and now here in Canberra. Jo, the floor is yours. But thank you, everyone, and I hope that what I say will build on and extend um, a bit, maybe in a slightly, um, slightly different trajectory, but build from what, what John was just talking about. Is there a clicker? Yeah, excellent. So um, we definitely want to leave time for lots of engagement. I might dive, dive in. Um, so six years ago, Sweden was the first to announce a feminist foreign policy. Three years ago, Canada then announced the first feminist international assistance policy. Last year, France, Mexico, and Luxembourg joined them in committing to feminist foreign policies. Last month, Mexico actually launched their feminist foreign policy, and they were the first uh, southern government to, to have one. And just last week, at the Munich Security Conference, which is one of the largest gatherings of uh, security policy decision makers, and our own Minister Reynolds uh, was present, this hashtag, No Peace Without Feminism, lit up the Twitter feeds of all with a very strong civil society present, um, making the case for feminist foreign policy um, with these security professionals. So... Why am I telling you about the timeline of some of these things? Um, I think if you use a futurist methodology or uh, foresight thinking, these have the potential to be what we would consider weak signals. So if you're looking forward, um, this steady trajectory of people picking up this idea and bringing it into new spaces um, is something we think may indicate a weak signal. Um, and of course, the importance of a weak signal is to put it in its context. Um, <laughs> so our analysis is that the international order is at a crossroads. Uh, the days of the Cold War are gone. Uh, we would say that the um, hegemony of the US as a sole superpower is fading. Um, blocks such as the BRICS countries have been um, working um, and emerging to try and harness their collective economic power to see how they can assert themselves in what was a, um, a different world order. The impacts of climate change are increasingly being felt, and southern governments are asking their counterparts, including um, in this region, to pay attention to their reality and to take that seriously and bring their efforts behind it. And of course, the not elephant in the room, the very much spoken about uh, situation of China growing um, in technology and economic power, exerting its new influence through trade, military might, and as a growing player in international development. These are all context uh, pieces that we think need to be put around this idea of weak signals of this emerging trend in feminist foreign policy. Um, and of course, as with uh, all contests of power, they need a staging ground, and it seems as though the Pacific is one of the staging grounds um, for the attempted renegotiation of this new multipolar world order. Um, and Australia has stated very clearly, we heard it from the minister this morning, um, that the security, prosperity, stability in this immediate geographic region are Australia's priorities. And what we see is Australia leaning into a really um, traditional approach. Um, so the geopolitical posturing that um, is embedded within the Pacific step up, where power is a zero-sum game, and it's very much focused on the security of the nation state and the national interest. 
So I guess our question is, will, will that traditional approach work if we lean into it? And I think it will be no surprise to you that I don't think that it will. I think these traditional approaches tend not to promote the interests of women, especially marginalized women. And to the extent that people claim that they've worked in the past, it is only because the voices of women and particularly marginalized groups have gone unheard which is, of course, where a feminist foreign policy comes in and where our research comes in. Um, where, because there were a number of feminist foreign policies that um, have, have come to the fore, which we've just um, gone through, but there is actually no single definition of a feminist foreign policy, and there is no unifying framework to judge the fullness of the implementation of a feminist foreign policy. So that was what our research was focused on. Um, so, of course, as a background to the research that we did, there was a, a literature review of sorts. Um, so Sweden, as the first cab off the rank, um, has done a lot to set the terms of what is meant by feminist foreign policy. Um, and their definition has two key elements. The first is a commitment to gender equality as the central goal of foreign policy, as well as a commitment to applying a gender lens across all areas of their work and operations. And the second is this more detailed um, undertaking the three R's, so uh, rights, promoting the rights of all women and girls um, for their full enjoyment of human rights, representation um, of women at all levels, and the resources, so backing these commitments with money. Um, of course, Canada as well, with its feminist international assistance policy, had a very similar take, putting gender equality at the heart of their work, stating that their vision for feminist international assistance is one that seeks to eradicate poverty and build a more peaceful, more inclusive, and more prosperous world, which Canada firmly believes that pro promoting gender equality and empowering women and girls is the most effective way to reach that goal. Um, and within that, they've also made a commitment to that uh, mainstreaming of gender across all areas of their work. Um, and like Sweden, they've put a, a target around their work. So they have required that 95% of Canada's bilateral international development assistance initiatives will target or integrate gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls by 2021-22, so quite soon. Um, of course, there's civil society groups who are working on uh, coming up with definitions as well, and most of these de definitions are crafted to reflect the similarities of the Swedish and Canadian policy, and also where civil society groups feel these definitions haven't gone far enough. So what was our research about? It was around um, trying to break out of the Twitter echo, echo chamber, as we were calling it, um, and foreground the voices of women in the countries who are on the receiving end of these feminist foreign policies, but who have little to no say in how they're set up. So we really wanted to answer the question, what do women in the global south see as the key principles and accountability mechanisms of a feminist foreign policy? Uh, so we partnered with the International um, Center for Research on Women and um, with uh, New York University, and we had a um, participatory action uh, approach that brought together 40 feminists from 19 countries in the global south to really reflect on the emergence of these feminist foreign policies to propose core principles and accountability mechanisms that would enhance their development and refinement and ensure that they were being delivered on. So quite quickly, the findings from this research. Um, 
the, well, first and foremost, I think important to say that people in the room agreed that what you do defines your policy more than what you call it. Um, and so there was very much a discussion and a debate around ensuring that feminist foreign policy is not just a gender washing approach, um, but that it is actually backed by real action. Um, and so that's where that accountability really came in. Um, so participants felt that uh, a feminist foreign policy needs to be rights-based, and they even extended that understanding to how you should advocate and communicate about your aid policy, which means, uh, sorry, your, feminist, your foreign policy. So no, um, no focus on national interests or no predominant focus on national interests is your key argument, but really around a rights-based approach. Um, the second principle was around reinforcing the role of the state as the ultimate duty bearer um, for human and economic rights and justice. Um, and I think this is, this is a really important point for the participants at the workshop. Um, and they were really asking uh, each other and us uh, as the researchers, and now all of you, to imagine that another world is possible outside the bounds of the current neoliberal capitalist paradigm. They really wanted that to be um, an ideal that we could put on the table and strive for. Um, the third principle was around transformative of the status quo, um, and a long discussion ensued about any announcement of a feminist foreign policy that didn't come with commensurate, commensurate action to change the policies as they stood at the time of that announcement should be viewed with suspicion for how transformative it really would be. Um, the, the principle of inclusive and intersectional and power disrupting um, is at the heart of feminist practice um, and making sure that we really are getting to hear the voices of the most marginalized. Comprehensive and coherent, um, ensuring that this is not just about our aid program or our diplomacy, but really looking at how we bring a whole of government um, approach, lining up defense and trade and other aspects of government behind these ideas. Possibly the most controversial principle um, that sparked the liveliest debate in the room was this um, principle that a feminist foreign policy should promote nonviolence and demilitarization. Um, but ultimately, we were there to um, amplify and hear the voices of women from the South. And this was a principle they felt very strongly about. Um, and then lastly, if you've ever worked in a feminist organization, you would know self-scrutiny um, is incredibly important. So that reflexive practice, praxis, making sure um, that we are constantly, um, well, a feminist foreign policy and its implementers are constantly asking themselves um, how well they're doing, how well they're living up to their ideals, what more could they do? Um, and the accountability mechanisms, I think, largely reflected what we see um, Sweden talking about. So it was around resources, human, financial, and legal to make the policy meaningful. It was around planning and reporting, um, and particularly making sure that that's inclusive and public. So um, reporting through parliaments, making, uh, making that transparent for people to engage with. And this principle of transparent misalignment, which um, I think is a really fascinating one, for governments, which was recognizing that there are trade-offs in that defense diplomacy trade arena. Um, and so where you make a choice that you think is not befitting of your declaration of a feminist foreign policy, you just make that really clear. Um, this, is, this is the trade-off we've made, and this is outside the boundaries of that feminist foreign policy. So, um, so those were the, the principles. So I guess um, you know after this workshop, which was a, a year ago, 
um, and the writing up of this research, we were wondering how, how weak is this signal? How much momentum is there in this space? So last month, of course, Mexico has announced their policy. Um, they worked very closely with a number of the um, institutions that we had partnered with on this research, and their policy does very much reflect um, what is coming out of this paper. So they've really listened and engaged strongly in, in that space. So I put this up here, ever the optimist. I was saying to some people um, in the audience after this morning's speech, I don't know that opportunities are going to land. Um, in any, any meaningful way in any uh, time frame. But anyway, here they are. Um, the minister um, currently, the Minister Payne, is both the Minister of Women and Minister of Foreign Affairs, and that's a unique position to bring together um, a focus on gender equality, both in the domestic space and the international. Um, so that, that's an opportunity for this feminist foreign policy agenda to get legs. Of course, there's the aid policy review, and you did hear Minister Hawk talk about bringing um, some alignment to a whole-of-government initiative. I don't know that this is what he had in mind, but if he's still working that out, I'm very happy to put it on the table for his consideration. Um, and then, of course, establishing our clear point of difference. So again, Minister Hawk this morning said, you know, we will be the single largest financial contributor to the Pacific. And that is important, but there are also other things that are important that could differentiate us and make us that partner that really brings our values to the table. Um, so we could go the whole hog and not just announce a feminist international assistance policy, but a feminist foreign policy if we want it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joe. Great to have the aspirations being laid out um, for us, and that was excellent to hear. One of the things I think you'll find with each of these papers is that really they're offering us an opportunity to rethink elements of our diplomatic practice, and the next paper is no exception. Um, so we're going to be hearing from Dr. Pierre van der Eng, and Pierre is an associate professor in the College of Business and Economics, and really comes at his topic, um, send them a shipload of rice, food aid, and Australia-Indonesia bilateral relations, 1960s and 70s, is coming at this topic from a development economics perspective. Pierre said to me before the session, I'm not sure how this is going to fit because, you know, I'm looking at something that's happened quite a way back in the past. But I, I think, I'm fairly certain, you're going to find that this is incredibly relevant given what we heard from Minister Hawke this morning and the kind of shifting approach to Australia's uh, relationship with Indonesia that's, that we're on the cusp of as well. Pierre, over to you. Thank you, Caitlin. Yes, uh, let's hope so. Um, I still need to be convinced, though. Let's see. Um, send them a shipload of rice. Uh, the title is from a, uh, a letter to the editor of The Age in 1957. Uh, a ready solution to all kind of messages coming out of uh, Indonesia in the 1950s about famine and malnutrition. Send them a shipload of rice. And it would have been apt because uh, Australia was gearing up to become a rice exporter of sorts. So my research interests are very much in uh, economic history and development economics. And uh, one of the strands uh, in my research is Australia's foreign aid program since the 1950s. I've uh, published a few uh, papers on that topic, and they relate particularly to, uh, to Indonesia. Now, uh, so this paper uh, is, uh, is part of uh, uh, that uh, research interest. 
I have to warn you, the paper focuses on just one aspect, and there are many other aspects that can be researched. One aspect of uh, Australia's aid program in Indonesia as it evolved uh, since the 1960s, the mid-1960s. Because from 1966 to 1967 onwards, all of a sudden, uh, Indonesia's, sorry, uh, Australia's uh, aid program towards Indonesia increased uh, very rapidly. And initially, uh, much of the aid that uh, came out of uh, Australia uh, going towards uh, uh, Indonesia took the form of food aid. And the question that I try to answer in the paper is, why is that the case? And I've studied uh, many uh, Australian government records, uh, which are readily available to anyone who takes an interest uh, in the National Archives of Australia, albeit that that is in Canberra. In other words, you have to be prepared to come here to do that kind of study. This is uh, a graphical impression of uh, Australia's uh, foreign aid program as it evolved uh, since the late 1940s uh, up until the 1990s. Uh, I stopped there because the, the, the chart is a bit busy as it is. Uh, but the, the line that you see crawling uh, at the top uh, is uh, Australia's foreign aid uh, as a percentage of, uh, of GDP. And although we like to think that uh, Australia is a major aid donor uh, these days, in terms of uh, percentage of GDP, uh, Australia was a major aid donor in the world as well as uh, in the world uh, by the late 1960s, more than uh, more recently, uh, or if not uh, very recently. Now, much of uh, Australia's foreign aid uh, for a long time, and that's what the green indicates, uh, went to uh, Papua New Guinea. And uh, what I'm particularly interested in uh, was uh, the, the red in the, in, in the graph, uh, because that represents uh, Indonesia. And the, the point there is that uh, Indonesia actually plays a, a modest role in, in, in Australia's uh, foreign aid program, has always played a modest role, although its role is quite significant when we abstract from uh, Papua New Guinea, right? Uh, then all of a sudden we see since the 1960s, uh, Indonesia absorbing around about a third of uh, bilateral aid uh, donated by, uh, by, uh, by Australia. Uh, this graph uh, indicates what kind of aid uh, uh, Australia was uh, passing on to Indonesia uh, from the early 1960s to the early 1990s. Uh, much of it was project aid. It related to... Uh, uh, projects, projects that had to be created and then uh, financed, except for uh, the late 1960s, early 1970s, when it was very green. Uh, and that means that around about 70% of uh, the aid given by Australia to Indonesia at that time was uh, commodity aid, and by and large that was food aid, especially 1968 to 73, much of it was food aid. So the question in the paper is, why uh, so much food aid, right? Uh, why not more uh, project aid uh, focused on uh, projects to alleviate poverty, for example, in different parts of Indonesia? And there was ab abject poverty in the late 60s, early 70s, and to a degree uh, later years as well, of course. One intuitive answer is, well, uh, there must have been uh, famines and food shortages and malnutrition uh, all around uh, Indonesia in the late 60s, uh, early 1970s. Yes, there must have been. However, at the time, it wasn't clear whether that was the case at all. Occasionally, there were newspaper reports in the 1950s, early 1960s, uh, indicating that 
there was famine threatening or famine was unfolding. However, the Indonesian government was very reluctant to, uh, to, to, to allow journalists to report freely about these uh, occasions of famine uh, in Indonesia. The reason for that was that Indonesia was on its way to become self-sufficient in uh, rice uh, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. That was the official propaganda. And uh, that meant that uh, any uh, attention to uh, malnutrition and, and uh, 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 famine, of course, uh, would go against that message that Indonesia was going to become self-sufficient. To the extent that uh, when uh, the Straits Times in Singapore um, reported that one million people in central Java were uh, on, on the edge of starvation, uh, President Sukarno uh, denied reports of uh, famines by saying it's lies, all lies. So the propaganda expected Indonesia to become self-sufficient very soon. Therefore, uh, internationally, it wasn't well known to what degree malnutrition and to what degree uh, famine plagued uh, Indonesia at the time. Uh, that started to change after 1965. Uh, new President uh, Suharto uh, was committed to what became the Green Revolution in rice agriculture, but that uh, did not really kick in uh, in the late 60s. It had to wait until the 1970s. Okay, so one, one reason could have been famine and malnutrition, but that wasn't the reason... Uh, sorry, that was the reason that was given in, in publicity relating to uh, Australia's food aid to Indonesia, but it wasn't the main reason when you look more closely. Uh, one thing that happened in uh, September 1965 was a, a coup against uh, President uh, Sukarno, and uh, that coup failed, and there was a regime change in Indonesia, and uh, opportunities for more foreign aid to flow towards uh, Indonesia opened up. Nevertheless, uh, Australia was very reluctant to uh, increase its uh, uh, donations of, uh, of aid to, uh, to Indonesia. For one thing, because uh, Australia continued to be effectively at war uh, over the confrontasi with Malaysia, with Indonesia. Indonesia had declared, or Sukarno had declared, uh, uh, confrontasi with Malaysia, and Australia was supporting Malaysia in this, uh, this war. Uh, the most pressing economic issue for Indonesia uh, following September 1965 was a uh, balance of payments deficit, uh, meaning that uh, Indonesia's export earnings were, earnings were flagging and it had great difficulties uh, raising the foreign exchange that was necessary to increase food imports to uh, alleviate famine that must have been there, if not malnutrition. Right. After uh, September 1965, 65, certainly after September 1966, donors were lining up to uh, provide more aid to Indonesia. The problem then was that in terms of food aid, there was no functioning distribution mechanism uh, in Indonesia to distribute uh, this uh, food aid uh, around Indonesia in an accountable way. Um, the food distribution system had collapsed, food markets no longer worked, so something new had to be uh, created, and that started to take the form of the, what was called the Commando Logistic National uh, in April 1966, uh, led by the military. The military still had the cap 
capability to uh, transport supplies of, uh, of food and also to supervise the equitable distribution of, uh, of food. So that was the nub of uh, what became the military-aligned food logistics agency Bullock since 1967 in Indonesia. So agencies, sorry, foreign countries were lining up to provide more aid, including food aid. Most of them wanted to provide uh, project aid, but the problem with project aid is it takes a long time uh, to, uh, to gear up these projects. Long lead-up times to design, to, uh, to contract out, uh, etc., and deliver uh, a, a project aid. So, the first, uh, uh, for that reason, and that's a major reason why much of the aid provided by Australia, but also by the United States, took the form of commodity aid simply because commodity aid could be mobilized much faster and could be absorbed much faster. And that led to the rapid increase of Australia's food aid to Indonesia since 1967. All right, simple answer, maybe. But, and there are some other uh, aspects in the, the paper. One thing is that uh, Indonesia uh, not only received food aid from Australia, it also received uh, quite uh, a bit of food aid from uh, the United States. And the United States started to provide this food aid under its PL480 program, meaning uh, it uh, uh, advanced uh, food aid um, uh, to uh, recipient countries under uh, low interest uh, loans. So it's very um, attractive for uh, aid recipient countries to uh, to uh, uh, agree to that. Now, PL 480 was a concern uh, for Australian producers, food producers, especially wheat flour producers, because they had already experienced in the 1950s uh, that American food producers and their agents uh, providing wheat to uh, India uh, under the uh, PL 480 program led to a significant loss of market share. Um, and that uh, was something that wanted to try and avoid in the case of Indonesia. So um, they, um, because, because Indonesia uh, was a major customer for uh, Australia's uh, wheat um, in the early 1960s. Uh, Australia's share in the uh, Indonesian meat, uh, wheat market was, uh, was quite significant. So what happens as soon as food aid started to flow from, in, from Australia was lobbying uh, by wheat and rice traders uh, of the uh, Australian government to increase food aid to uh, Indonesia. And the argument was, well, if we don't do this, we will lose market share in Indonesia today and in the future. So officially, food aid was given in order to uh, deliver uh, uh, famine relief, but actually there, was no, there were no direct relations between food aid given and food aid uh, distributed in famine regions in Indonesia because everything went through the Food Logistics Agency. So there was no direct relationship between uh, the food aid coming in and uh, the delivery of uh, food aid. So safeguarding um, Australia's share in Indonesia's uh, wheat imports was quite important. So you see wheat aid and also wheat imports into Indonesia increased significantly. And in the paper you can read that this was the start of Indonesia's instant noodle industry because much of the wheat uh, was milled in order to uh, feed 
so to say, uh, Indonesia's rapidly growing instant noodle industry. To the extent that it fed, uh, one could say, Indonesia's noodle addiction since the 1960s. Because in recent years, on average, per person, uh, Indonesia is uh, absorbing, put it like that, more than 30 kilos of wheat per person per year. So uh, all that is in the in the paper, and uh, if you're interested in reading more, um, I uh, can give you a copy if you're if you're uh, if you let me know about your interest. Thank you. Thanks, Pierre. I look forward to reading that, and thanks also for the shout out to National Archives. I reckon the National Archives um, should fit in Canberra's kind of soft power promotion because um, it's a great resource and, and can give us such insights. Um, we've now come to the final paper for today and this will be co-presented and I'd like to invite David Green, uh, who's the principal consultant with Clear Horizon, and Kaisha Krupi, who's also a consultant with Clear Horizon, um, to come and tell us talk to us about where's the dirty laundry, DFATS, APPRs and the public diplomacy imperative. And I should mention that Dave and Keisha come really from a practice orientation, spending much of their time in the design, monitoring and evaluation uh, space. So I think they've, they've learned some lessons through their practice and it will be great to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, yeah, thanks, or welcome to the, the Dirty Laundry presentation, or not so dirty laundry in the case of this uh, photo. I wish my, my laundry looked like that. A um, few raised eyebrows when I've uh, spoken to people over the last couple of days about this presentation, so I think it's piqued a little bit of interest, uh, but I don't think it'll be quite as contentious as maybe it seems like it's going to be, but we'll see. Despite that, I'll just say as a quick disclaimer that um, it is just based on public information. So, so we are involved in supporting DFAT with portfolio um, monitoring and, and reporting uh, across various different country programs, but uh, uh, we've gone purely to the public uh, data in order to, to present some evidence uh, in the presentation today. So as a quick uh, overview, what we'll be doing is just uh, talking about what APPRs are and their, their stated purpose. Uh, we'll then present a rapid review that we did of uh, levels of balance uh, in a sample of, of APPRs that we were able to review. And then based on uh, the findings of that, we'll reflect on whether APPRs are fit for purpose or the extent to which they are and consider some, some alternative ways that potentially the same, same purposes uh, could be achieved in potentially <laughs> Uh, more efficient, more effective ways. As a, just a, a bit of a check about people's level of familiarity, who's, who's actually read an APPR from front to back? <laughs> that's not too bad. Who's, who's been involved in writing an APPR? I think that's the same number of people. I think it's the <laughs> same people that are reading and writing them. <laughs> Uh, this, this text is taken from the, the aid programming guide. I'm not sure how relevant that is now in the shifting landscape with the uh, aid review underway. Uh, but I think for me there are two main points to take away. One is that the, the stated purpose is uh, predominantly around program improvement, really, and accountability. 
So it's, there isn't anything explicit there around communications and uh, public diplomacy. Secondly, there is, there's an explicit expectation that challenges would be, should be discussed in APPRs and that they, they should be a relatively balanced kind of uh, products. So just with that kind of prelude, Keisha will, will talk us through uh, the rapid review that, that we did. Thank you. Um, so just uh, yeah, honing, on, uh, honing in on the uh, question of balance in the APPR reporting, um, the review just looked at the top five country programs um, by budget, so about 30% of the total overseas aid program in the last financial year or this financial year. Um, just noting a couple of limitations of our very rapid review. Um, we didn't include programs that are obviously less heavily driven by foreign policy interests, um, potentially in smaller or lower profile programs um, where there could be a scope to take in a much more balanced approach to reporting. Um, and we didn't look at multilateral or regional programs as well. Um, and we looked back over uh, the four years, um, which for these programs was also the life of the current um, investment plan. So we looked at about 20 APPRs in total. Um, we kept the analysis very simple and looked at two parts or two components of the APPRs, heavily focused on the ratings per the um, AIP objectives. Um, and supporting the text for those ratings, so focused on the text supporting their, um, around the amber and red ratings more so, obviously not really focusing on the green ratings. Did a bit of a, a quant uh, analysis about the amount of text spent um, on achievements versus challenges, um, and then qualitative analysis of coding the text by themes um, and determining whether the themes were uh, deductive or inductive. So starting with the, uh, how balanced the ratings were. So this chart here just shows the percentage of the AIP objectives rated green, amber, and red. Um, as you can see, the, the first and major takeaway that there's no red ratings, um, not even for challenging contexts like Papua New Guinea, as you can see. Um, this can be considered a red flag in and of itself, um, a hesitancy to acknowledge uh, major challenges that could be prevalent. And quickly, uh, just how balanced the reporting was. The findings for here were a little bit more striking. We should note that this is based only on the reporting of the progress against the objectives, not the whole APPR overall, although that's the main body, I guess, um, and describes whether the objectives were on track and why and why not. So the two takeaways here, um, the first is that by any reasonable standard, um, but particularly given the challenges in international development, as we know, um, the number of words spent on challenges is quite low, <laughs> um, particularly in the challenging context of um, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands and Timor-Leste. And the second one is that there are no real consistent trends over time, um, perhaps a tick up in the amount of time spent um, on talking about challenges in 2018-19 compared to the previous three years, with the exception of Indonesia there. Um, and then how self-critical were the APPR descriptions on challenges? Um, so we took the text that described the challenges, uh, that discussed challenges or shortcomings and coded it according to whether the type of challenge was described as internal or external, which um, you can read here. Yep. Um, and then also we looked at how self-critical the um, APPR descriptions of the challenges were. Um, so this chart here just describes the 
challenges, uh, sorry, the percentage of described challenges, not the total percentage of words um, that are attributed to factors within Australia's control. Um, keep in mind that the full pie of words um, on challenges is quite low, um, so about 4% on average. Uh, so the main takeaway here is that overall, there is very little attention dedicated to describing challenges within Australia's control. Um, and I'll hand it back to Dave to talk about what this means. Okay, so yeah, just coming back to the original question, uh, uh, to what extent are APPRs fit for purpose? Uh, as we sort of st said at the start, that the stated purpose is around uh, basically program improvement and uh, accountability. <laughs> Arguably both of those purposes require uh, consideration of what's not working uh, as well as what's uh, working. And yet in the APPR text that we looked at, uh, uh, of, of 150,000 words, there was only 5,000 uh, that were spent discussing challenges. So there's a lot of time and effort going into that other 145,000 words. Um, and the question is, could, could that time and energy and, and resources be used for in other ways to uh, pursue the same, same objectives that, that APPRs uh, at least officially have? So our argument... Um, I guess I should say, first of all, that we we do think that there's scope, like I guess there's this question of to what extent you, you can be uh, self-critical in public reporting. We think that the the uh, position we're at at the moment is, is extreme, uh, and so there is scope to be more balanced than, than we're seeing at the moment in, in public APPR, in public APPRs. Uh, but we also think that there's an opportunity to make these reports much shorter, uh, high level, uh, and probably more geared towards the communication purpose that it appears is, is the actual de facto uh, purpose that they're, they're written for. Um, and if you do that, then potentially you free up resources uh, for uh, a focus on dedicated learning and improvement processes at the portfolio level, which could be largely internal. So our sense is, I guess, that at the moment, all of the investment is going on public reporting and there's, there's less uh, available for the internal learning and improvement work. So our suggestion uh, is that if, if we do decide to invest a little bit more on, on the learning side, one tool that, that may be appropriate, which uh, USAID uh, have used, is a learning agenda. Uh, and so the key point here is that basically you give country programs the autonomy to decide the topics or, or the learning topics or questions that are important to them and that are actually going to be uh, used by them for improvement. Uh, so each year, uh, that each country program would articulate an annual learning agenda with a set of uh, questions, uh, possibly around something like, uh, what are we learning around effective policy engagement? Or how do we get better at supporting uh, decentralization in our, our country? Um, topics that are actually directly applicable to their work and of broad relevance across the program. Um, then uh, there's, there's a sort of mixed methods approach to trying to answer those questions. So that might involve uh, some, some existing work, uh, existing data collection that's already happening, like strategic evaluations that I think all country programs are already required to do. 
It might involve synthesizing information better that from the investment level so that you're trying to draw out insights from investment level progress reporting or, or aid quality checks. Uh, or it might be new data collection methods like a, a survey, anonymous survey of, of counterparts or partners to see what their perception is of the aid program in relation to a, a key aspect of good practice. And then lastly, uh, some, some dedicated learning and reflection processes and products. Uh, and so they might be good practice guides, learning briefs, or probably more usefully, some kind of uh, facilitated reflection workshop where you're inviting in critical friends to be a part of that, that sense-making uh, process that the program goes through on an, on an annual um, basis. The, I guess, slightly controversial suggestion here is that no, nothing, none of this would be required to be published. Uh, but I imagine that there would probably be an interest in publishing uh, some version of what, what comes out of those processes. The risks, I guess, with this suggestion is that, that it becomes just another procedural compliance-driven uh, exercise, and so I think uh, that, that would be a major risk and, and any guidance would need to be at sort of pr principle level only so that you're not making it too, too mechanistic. Uh, secondly, it could be too intensive, so perhaps for larger country programs it's, it's a better fit. They usually have the resources to do things like this. Uh, and thirdly, it could just become a talk fest with no real insight or action coming out of it. And so we think it would be important to invest in good facilitation and good topic area expertise uh, to uh, inform the, the learning that happens. A proposal to, uh, to put on the table. Thank you. Thanks, Dave and Kaisha. Actually, I'm going to ask each of our panellists to come up and take a chair so we can have some time for questions um, and discussion from the floor. If you'd like to raise your hand and let us know if you've got a question, introduce where you're from. Um, now's the time to do it. Uh, my name's Graham Kerridge. I'm an international uh, consultant in the health area. Uh, my question is uh, to Pierre. Um, as you were talking about the experience of uh, rice aid uh, to Indonesia, uh, I was uh, thinking about the, uh, the analyses of the US uh, food aid program, uh, which, as you may be aware, during the second Obama presidency, they, uh, there was a major move to try to stop uh, because uh, it had been found to be uh, vastly, vastly more expensive than actually just providing the cash so that food could be procured locally. And secondly, uh, by providing the, the food as a commodity, it was destroying the local market mechanisms. Uh, now, as you said, the Australian rice um, was fairly small compared with other food aid programs that were going to Indonesia, but was there um, at all a consideration that you picked up in your analyses uh, of the impact that uh, donating food as a commodity uh, might have on local uh, market mechanisms. 
I have a question for if they've been coming. Um, if, you know, I mean, in posts, of course, there's often a lot of more informal or ad hoc learning about experiences as they go, right? Especially in dialogue with partners. I would argue that the real value of what you're talking about is to capture lessons more institutionally, right? As people roll over constantly at post, right? This kind of thing would allow learning to go beyond those people rolling over, right? But as well to be able to share it more broadly. Um, but I do think the big challenge would be that it would become just another mandated process that posts would just do at the absolute bare minimum, rather than actually doing it for what's intended. And then we have a third question over here. Uh, my question is uh, for Pierre. It's about how do you think that this uh, uh, this experience with the rice uh, shipping to Indonesia, how, how has that shaped uh, Australians' aid policy towards Indonesia um, in the long term, if it did, in any way? Thank you. Pierre, we might kick off with you. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for the questions. Um, both of you mentioned rice. Uh, yes, the rice was part of uh, Australia's uh, food aid program to Indonesia and other countries as well. Um, but uh, the quantities were very small compared to wheat. Wheat was a big game. Um, and that also uh, is the key to uh, answering your question about the impact on local markets. The thing is that um, uh, Indonesia has not been and still is not a wheat producer. In other words, the impact on markets uh, was by and large the impact on the opportunities to sell wheat to Indonesia commercially. Right? Uh, and that is part of my story, although I didn't uh, explain it uh, well enough, but it's all in the paper if you want to read it. Um, wheat aid was mixed up with uh, wheat commercial exports to uh, Indonesia. Uh, effectively, uh, on average, both together, lowering the price of wheat vis-a-vis -vis competitor wheat uh, uh, exporters relative to Canada, relative to the United States. If you have a greater percentage of uh, wheat aid, on average that lowers the price of, uh, of wheat imported into Indonesia. And that improves your competitive position. And uh, coming to uh, the question there, it will help you uh, develop uh, and sustain the market share in Indonesia's uh, wheat market, possibly well up until today, to the degree that Indonesian consumers were willing to consume more, more wheat, as clearly they have been willing to, to do this. Um, there was another question uh, that related to uh, the recent uh, US food aid. Um, yeah, sorry, I had my head in uh, the past a bit too much to keep up with what happened more recently. It surprised me slightly because my understanding is that internationally there has been agreement uh, about the negative consequences uh, of food aid uh, reached in the 1980s and since then uh, food aid, except for emergency uh, situations, has decreased significantly. So, I don't have a ready answer, but that was... The US still has a, a very substantial food aid program, and Obama was not able to get it uh, mm. stopped. I learned that from you, thank you. Yes. And Dave, would you like to pick up? Uh, yeah, thanks, Tom. I agree with your comments. Um, I, I do think, though, that in some of the bigger programs, uh, the, it's, I think it's still surprising the the missed opportunities for cross-learning even between staff who are, 
who are working alongside each other, so it can become quite siloed. So I think there'd be value in, in making that cross-learning a little bit more structured and systematic. Um, and yeah, I think that is one of the risks that it becomes too procedural, but, um, but I, I think it just has more potential, like if a, a good uh, post manager or leader decides to actually make it something more meaningful, I feel like there's, there'd be much more scope for them to do, um, to, 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 to facilitate true learning and improvement within the program compared to the process they have now, which is just so heavily oriented around a public reporting product. Dave, can I ask also, just on that line, have you had the opportunity to share your paper and research with DECA? Uh, there's a few DECA people in the room today. We have, uh, yeah, not, not, not really. Like, there are definitely some posts who are keen to, uh, to do this sort of thing, uh, and so, I think it just depends on the, the particular management team you have at, at posts at a particular point in time. Thank you. Any more questions? It's one, two, three, and four. Perfect. Sorry, if you just yeah, thank you. Hi, Southless said I've asked um, this question um, through three different forums from yes. yesterday, and also asked Ms. Wolf this morning. So I'm glad that APBR, with some of us in Little Fiji, do actually look at. Um, has come up in this uh, panel. Um, there has been a lot of criticism in the re in recent weeks about uh, poor performance of AD in the Pacific, and it, and it originated from a look at the APBR. Um, not only a poor performing aid, but you know, a, a, a um, um, development. Uh, Personnel who works through ADP World Bank will also be very critical. Um, I think day before yesterday in Australia, similarly. Um, you would be interested to know that, you know, I mean, NGO leaders and, and, and uh, uh, regional organization leaders in the Pacific are also interested in having some of the dirty laundry um, um, brought out into the public. Because when you, I, I looked through the regional um, APR report and uh, when this criticism came out to, to sort of see where are we going wrong, why are we going wrong, how can we get it right, you know, I mean, it's all very well to criticize the Pacific about poor performing, performing aid, but you know, we also want to know where we're going wrong, how do you get it better? So how can Pacific governments do better to hold donor partners to account um, uh, hold donor partners to be more accountable with regards to ownership and mutual um, accountability to ensure success of the um, donor donors. And whose responsibility is it really? I mean, you know, they, you say that your um, MEs are created um, with sort of mutual partnership, but ultimately it's DFED that drives it. Um, yet when the criticism comes, it seems like, you know, the Pacific is just performing badly, so how do we get it right? That's for me too, isn't it? That's yeah. for you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I have, I, my answer probably won't satisfy you, <clears throat> but I, I guess just coming back to the topic of, of my presentation, I think, um, I don't think a, you know, the, a heavy investment in a public report is really a useful tool for dialogue with, with partner government about what's working and what's not working, and so, having much more flexibility to come up with a learning agenda that includes you know, some internal processes, uh, some external processes where you're engaging with key, 
key counterparts in government or key critical friends, uh, it means you can actually devise some spaces where DFAT will probably be quite comfortable to to have that sort of more difficult dialogue with, with counterparts uh, and, and civil society representatives about what's what's working but also what's not working. Uh, hi, Ron, Kate from the Australian Civil Military Centre. Um, I think uh, Professor Langmore sort of music to argue is there about the uh, sort of increased focus on peacekeepers. Uh, I think the Black Rock Institute out in Fiji is a, a key example. But one thing, um, having spent a long time in the NGO, I'm interested to unpack is around conflict prevention and stabilisation of peace building often starts from the very bottom of the grassroots. Investing you know, more in the diplomatic core is, is useful, but the solutions need to come from the ground and those people in country. Is, is that something you would be encouraging or is it more funding flowing to, to, to the DFAT sort of level? Thanks very much for that uh, question because I left out, uh, in the interest of time, another recommendation which is that, that it's very important to have, to build up non-government uh, peace building activity, uh, which is often the best way of doing grassroots um, uh, peace building. I think it's not the only way, but, but that's, that's Australia tends at present to depend on, on uh, agencies from other countries to, to do peace building at the, at the ground level. And it's often very good quality resources. Uh, reconciliation resources from London, for example, did splendid work on, in Bougainville in, in uh, building up dialogue and, and, and mediation. And, and that was very important in, in many aspects of the global conflict. And that, it's very important that that be expanded and continued. But the, the, the tragedy is that, that uh, at present, there's only one Australian uh, base agency which, which does that, and that's a one-man agency, Pacifica. Uh, uh, rehabilitation, uh, reconciliation resources has quite a lot of people based in Australia, but they're, they're founded in London and they're, they're a London-based organisation. There's no reason not to use them, uh, but it would, be, it would expand the capacity of Australia to be involved in that kind of activity if there was a larger Australian-based, Australian-founded uh, organisation uh, that was also working on that kind of activity. Uh, I, I think that's really quite important, not least because uh, the, the government needs to be able to uh, quickly call on uh, other agencies uh, as well as its own public servants uh, for uh, action in relation to conflict. And public servants are diplomats are constrained in some ways and, and sometimes non-government organisations have greater flexibility and a greater capacity to try out a, a potential means of, of reconciling parties that are in conflict with each other. The, the whole idea of <coughs> negotiation uh, is something that Australia uses but it could use more it seemed to us and, and uh, sometimes called
track one and a half, which includes both official and non-official experts and 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 and, uh, and diplomats. So uh, I, I think it's that we need diversity in the area of conflict resolution. It is a complex, very time-consuming activity which requires uh, maintained activity of a very empathetic kind. And it's hard quite often for diplomats who uh, are posted for three years or four years at a place to, to maintain that for, for the long term. And sometimes the non-government sector is better equipped to do that. So there are other points. Tony, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I just might add um, to, to what John was saying. When we were speaking to people in DFAT, we were hearing a lot of different types of experiences and stories, and we were um, inviting people to share examples of, of uh, support to peace building initiatives. And that might have been uh, as something like a peace building education program. And, but what was important was the emphasis is certainly on supporting local actors engaged in longer term peace building processes. But uh, some, when uh, this area isn't as um, as uh, isn't supported enough, it can mean that some of those decisions to support peace building initiatives depend on individuals. Um, are not always, and that can change depending on who's you know, head of mission or what relationships exist and what happens with uh, changes of people, um, understandings of what are some of the longer term structural problems and drivers. And so I guess the, um, the emphasis on building the capacity, the institutional memory, uh, and is about how decisions are made, what priorities are there, and how the value of that um, is understood. So we weren't, um, we were trying to capture a range of experiences that aren't always, um, uh, these stories aren't always um, heard about and told. So the public narrative uh, for conflict and peace in Australian uh, foreign policy often uh, emphasises Bougainville and the Solomons and you know there's lots of uh, different perspectives on that so we were interested in other ways that um, people in DFAT felt that they were supporting uh, longer term peace building as well as uh, what and, and it was very much an internal reflective process because uh, it hadn't been documented there hadn't been a review done before um, it was uh, a report that was uh, with an intern primarily internal purpose, so people were able to uh, critically reflect and engage on a range of issues that included um, policy and vision through to organisational structure and, and funding. So, yeah. Will it be made publicly available? Um, yeah, so we've so we, in April we submitted the internal report and we've had a process of feedback and engagement and it relates to different sections of course in DFAT. So that's been a, a very constructive, good process and we're um, looking to publish the public report in, in, a, in a month or so. But of course it doesn't have um, all the internal, the qualitative, interesting stories, <laughs> um, which which happens, but it does have the core 
the core aspects. The, the core recommendations. The core recommendations. Core findings. We'll have to look out for it. Um, if we just go, Julie, to you. Thanks, Thanks. Julie and Lucian Hanson. Thanks all great presentations. Really enjoyed them. I'd like to just, Joe, on the feminist foreign policy, thank you for giving us the sense that there's a building momentum of countries adopting a feminist foreign policy. Um, are you, and, and some recommendations of where we might lobby for one in Australia. Are you, firstly, are you aware of other countries that might be considering this and where the next movers might be? And what would you say are the kind of key arguments we might make with our government um, to actually uh, focus their interests in this area? And if I could kind of link that to a question to John, you know, John, I mean, I, what a fantastic presentation, but as you said, kind of we've been looking at this diplomatic deficit for 30, you know, 30 years, and people have written logical, sensible, rational um, papers about it, um, but our government wants to fund defence and intelligence, and that goes across, you know, the, the major political parties. So. You know, what, what is it? Um, I, you know, it's not the logical arguments about how you can save money and save lives by investing differently. What are the arguments or how do you take this to, um, to the Australian, the macho Australian government to, um, to bring about change? Thank you. Thanks, Julia. Um, next movers. Well, it's a big year for gender equality uh, this year, so I think there will be lots of governments thinking about what does it look like to make a statement in, in this year. And I can speak mostly from a civil society perspective of where people are really interested in engaging their governments at the moment. Um, so we've definitely heard um, from Fijian civil society that there would be some interest um, and some thinking that Mexico making moves really opens up that potential for other countries, uh, I don't like the term the global south, but that's the term you know, that's out there, thinking about it. So moving away from the, the white Western donor countries. Um, so that's a possibility. And certainly um, if we're putting energy in, in convincing governments, maybe not just the Australian government, we can think about looking into the region as well. Um, also Cambodia. Um, so these are two, you know, two countries that are not that typical white Western face, uh, and, and there is interest and um, support within some segments of their civil society. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were more that came out this year. Um, in terms of key arguments that we could make, I think really interestingly, so I said in the presentation what you do is more important than what you call it. Um, and sorry, I'm going to out many DFAT friends, but in every conversation we have with DFAT, and particularly with those who work on gender inside DFAT, they will tell you, we already have a feminist foreign policy or a feminist aid policy. We just don't call it that. But actually, when you look at the resourcing and the commitments that these feminists, those who declare a feminist foreign policy or international assistance policy are making, they're really not any more advanced than what Australia is doing. So I think that for me, that's the key argument is that if you're going to be a leader in this space, you might as well get the credit for doing it. I think it's important um, you know, that you don't hide your light under a bushel and we are trying to talk about who we are, what's unique to us, what's our value add. Um, and this is something that's already happening. So I think it's around 
stepping into our leadership in that area. I think that's probably the most likely argument we can make. I think there's a lot more that can be achieved by, by reasonable discussion. But very rarely do you hear uh, the cost effectiveness of defence or intelligence or diplomacy or aid evaluated. And, and uh, there have been occasional uh, slight attempts, but there should, we should be urging that that be done annually uh, at, on a cost effectiveness basis. And, and if it were, then we would, people would start to realise that diplomacy is the most cost-effective way of, of saving funds because it, even if you can only resolve one or two conflicts, that's far less expensive than sending troops overseas to deal with it. Uh, and, and for exactly the same reason, we should be building up our support in that area at the UN. Uh, uh, so so that, 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 that's one point. I, I think another is uh, that it's important to educate people about what diplomats actually do. It's not that they just fly business class and stay in fine hotels. They, they, they do talk to other representatives of, of other countries and, and it's building up the trustworthiness of those personal uh, contacts that they have that are central in, in, in reducing conflict. And, and thirdly, I think DFAT's got to be a bit more ambitious uh, it, uh, it's been so used to being bashed down for the last quarter century, it, it no longer asks for nearly enough. When Defence wants uh, more funds uh, to deal with something or other, they, 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 they show why it's essential, essential to get 12 submarines, uh, but, and, and they don't talk about the cost, and the cost comes out afterwards, uh, or, or, or intelligence, similar kinds of things. They, they, they've got to learn to make a strong, a much stronger case for the for the for, for the necessity. If, if 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 we want to live secure lives, we've got to have more peaceful foreign policy, and and it's not a particularly difficult uh, story to get across to a lot of people. My name is Tessie McCain. I'm from the Griffith Asia Institute. Um, my question, I think, goes to all of you, and it's, it particularly falls on for you, John, because I guess um, in some research that we launched on Monday, one of the things that we talked about was that here in Australia there is a lack of Pacific literacy. And drawing on what you said, what I think that is a subset of is a lack of aid literacy and a lack of foreign policy literacy. So, John, you say it's not a difficult story to get across to a lot of people, you're a former politician and you know it is because there's no votes in any of this stuff. Nobody's going to town hall meetings and asking political candidates, what more are you going to invest in peace building? Where's our foreign, feminist foreign policy? You know, what, what, what's going on with our aid effectiveness? These are not questions that are being asked. They're not being asked this on TV by any sales or anything else. So I guess my question is, where are where are the opportunities to improve the overall environment into which these conversations are being introduced so that this work that you're doing can have the effect that you want it to? I, I reject the idea that there aren't votes in it. I mean, I know from my own experience, the 12 years in perhaps the best electorate in Australia, 
But there are a lot of people who care about these things. But I think the proportion do around the whole country. So I, I, I wouldn't despair about, about that. Um, but it's, it's, it's true that, that the majority of people are more concerned about domestic things. Uh, so we have to encourage public education in every area that, that needs to be... And, and when that's done, it's fairly popular. I mean, in Victoria, uh, uh, the, the area that's built up greatest, uh, most rapid growth of interest has been on, on global governance. And, and, and uh, uh, year 12 is, is uh, a particular stage of life when people start to, to expand their interests, but, but that group is interested. That the, the fastest growing area of, of, of undergraduates at Melbourne University uh, it has been uh, international relations. And, and so, I mean, these are, I accept that these are minorities, but the more they're fed and, and better informed, the more, the more that will spread out through the community. I, I think it's too easy to despair about this. Can I just add, I mean, I think um, John Dunning's presentation yesterday also gave us some thinking around that. So changing the way that we talk about the, the aid discourse, you know, if we, if we are able to talk about this as global investment and not foreign investment, some of those ideas, um, and there are many more out there, I think that's really important to, you know, uh, changing the aid literacy, the foreign policy literacy, and getting these ideas on people's radar to bring to these community meetings. And people people do care about them. It's that discourse that's really, um, that charity mindset, you know, as John said yesterday, it tracks um, those in power as much as the people who are recipients, and I think we need to break out of that. I had a really awkward um uh, situation once where I was people's panel for my local government uh, electorate and I wanted, you know, I, I raised issues about how you're going to influence Brisbane's engagement with the world. I have to say my little call for action just didn't rate against the, the, the concern about the overpass um, that was happening. So it, it is really hard and changing the discourse is something we probably all have a bit of a responsibility to be part of. Yeah, it's a question of balance. I mean, a good local politician has to do good yeah. local work, and, I, and anyone, anyone who's any good does. But that doesn't mean that, that, that people won't recognise that to make Australia safe and secure and so on, there have to be good policies with international relations as well. And, and they mostly will respect the degree of that. I think we've got one last question. Yeah. Um, just continuing on the Senate, maybe flipping the question though for both Joanna and John. Um, where have you seen, you know, John, your research looked at other middle powers and how they approach sort of the, the peacemaking against building the parts. Joanna, you highlighted the famous foreign policies and personal bits. Um, we've talked about convincing our own message What was it in their context that allowed them to, and the Nordics say when it comes to peace building, Norway, very self conscious peace building because of foreign policy, Sweden, they're doing it. So, your, your hashtag mention of you know, no peace without feminism, I think there is a link. Um, but can you sort of comment more on how you've seen others, I mean, some of the governments and their own ecologies? 
sort of economic question about energy addicts. Um, what is it? What are the ingredients that make it work? What could we learn from others? Um, in the feminist foreign policy space, I wish there was a silver bullet of commonality. Um, I don't know that there is, but certainly um, that desire to set, set themselves apart and to signal um, a like-mindedness with, with some others um, has been, I think, a driving force. So you have Sweden who really wanted to own um, their first rank in, in every index on everything and, you know, <laughs> just being Sweden. Um, and they might as well go whole hog, so they really, you know, leaned in to use that metaphor. And then you have Mexico, for example, who um, a lot of this um, commitment around feminist foreign policy is driven through their work on generation equality, so the Beijing plus 25 anniversary year, um, and recognizing that they hosted one of the uh, women's conferences in the 70s, and really bringing back that role that they had in shaping the women's movement through hosting, and so this was a way of re-articulating a commitment. But interestingly, with Mexico, very, very much driven through the bureaucracy. It was the bureaucracy's interest that moved it up. Whereas with France, it was very much at the um, head of state level that the declaration was made. So you actually see multiple pathways into this agenda, um, which doesn't help us, excuse me, help us know what to do. In, in uh, the Scandinavian countries, it's been uh, principally uh, the trade union movement and the, ch and the churches and in the past have, have had an internationalist uh, orientation that has been very influential. Of course, the churches are far less strong now, uh, but there are still lots of groups in the community with very strong international links. I mean, in, in Australia, it would, be, it would be the religion and sport that, 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 uh, that carry that. Uh, but, but as well as that, it's it's the, it's the groups in the business sector who, who, who uh, have, have growing international concerns. Australia is amongst the greatest travellers in the world. We have uh, large proportions of our population with very strong links in, in, in schools and countries. I mean, it would also be conceptually easier to talk about international things in Australia than almost any other country, I would say. And so, and I think. If, if that's done skillfully and, and attractively, it, it's probably going to be effective. Unfortunately, in the interest of time, we'll have to uh, bring this session to a close. We've had four really excellent presentations today and a fantastic discussion. I wonder if you can join with me to thank our panellists and Twizzler, who's done a brilliant job. You have been listening to Dev Policy Talks, a podcast by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. And thanks for listening.